And now, two pigeons bemoaning the fact you can stream DirecTV satellite-free. You see this? A family watching baseball on DirecTV with no satellite dish in sight. Let's heckle them. You call that changing the channel? Choke up on the remote, buddy. I hope getting all these games on DirecTV makes up for your mother not pre-chewing your sunflower seeds. DirecTV has the most MLB games. Visit DirecTV.com. Claim based on total games offered on national and regional sports networks with choice package or higher. Availability of RSNs varies by zip code and package. High-speed internet service required. Terms and restrictions apply. Winning lottery numbers we coming up. Canes over here. Hey, we got canes over here. Category five. What you gonna do? All right, welcome back to another installment of the Wide Right Podcast. I'm Manny Navarro, Miami Hurricanes beat writer for The Athletic, joined once again by my colleague, Carlos Ledo of the MIA All Day Podcast. We're colleagues officially now because we've done, uh, I don't know, 100 podcasts together now. What's the what's the number up to? It's uh, like between somewhere between 20 and 1,000, and somewhere okay. in that range. Somewhere good. I see you got the uh, the cigar out tonight. Rough day. It's been a long day at work, so I decided to do this one uh, outdoors and get okay. my cigar on. All right. Uh, plus, plus, it's a victory cigar. We had a big win against Southern Miss. <laughs> and, and the Gators lost. And the Gators lost, correct. So big day for uh, Hurricanes fans to celebrate quite a bit. Uh, we are recording this Monday night, September 12th, right around 8 p.m. Um, the Hurricanes face Texas A&M this week. This was the game everybody was getting all excited about, Carlos. And then Jimbo Fisher's team went out and crapped the bed. They lost to... Appalachian State at home. Now Miami can't make fun of them for losing to Appalachian State because if not for an Andy Borgales field goals, that would that would have happened to Miami last year. Well, they can because they actually won the game. Right, but it's not like they won with style points or it was some sort of impressive uh, listen, victory. Listen, bro, it doesn't matter as long as you get the dub at the end of the night. You know, you'd rather get that ugly W than be feeling how those people are feeling right now in College Station with their head in their hands. Where they thought they had an outside shot at the fucking uh, the uh, excuse the uh, the f bomb almost <laughs> at the at the college football playoff, and now they're like, what do we do now? Where do we go from here? Because let, let me tell you, they could easily start the season one and three. They could lose to us this week, and they have Arkansas the next week. It's yeah. no easy task. It could go down uh, hill fast for for the Aggies. Um, by the way, they've they've been. I don't know if you if you follow SEC shorts on. Uh, on Twitter or uh, Coach Thirty, um, I follow Coach Thirty. Yeah, but uh, SEC Shorts has a great skit. It's about three minutes long. I attach it to the story I just put out in the Athletic uh, after Miami's coordinators talk today, and uh, it's basically uh, you know kind of like one of those SNL type skits where there, there's doctors working in the emergency room, and all of a sudden, a few patients come in, uh, and and it's you know Texas A&M, Nebraska, Notre Dame. They're all beat up. It's all been a really rough start to the season. Just very good, very good comedy. And Coach 30 does a great job, um, you know, breaking down film. We've seen him make fun of people before, and, and it was a great rip job on Texas A&M after that loss to Appalachian State. So they're going to be an angry football team in my mind. They're a six-point yeah. favorite. Uh, they're still extremely talented, fourth most talented team in the country, according to the 247 Sports Team Talent Composite, which is all the recruiting rankings combined together. Um but I will say this, Carlos. I listened to Jimbo Fisher's interview today. I listened to a few Texas A&M players talk. And you know what it sounds like to me? It sounds a lot like Miami last year. Mm. It sounds a lot like a team that uh, 
didn't have a quarterback at the beginning of the season, right? Derek King was coming back from that injury, gets hurt. You have Tyler Van Dyke who takes over. You're, you're kind of like, well, the offense is sputtering. We don't look very good the first couple games. Um, and it's a team that's, you know, th the word that's coming out uh, over and over again is there's not enough buy-in. That's what the Texas A&M players are saying. And, and where did we hear that? Didn't we hear that the first six games of last year for the for the Hurricanes? Yeah, but it's there's a slight difference. You would think that a guy like Jimbo Fisher with a national title under his belt with the kind of cachet that he has coming from Florida State, um, just landing the number one recruiting class in the country, having four straight top ten recruiting classes, guys that he's handpicked now to be at A&M with him, would have a little bit more buy-in from the guys that he's uh, you know, basically kidnapped to College Station because nobody wants to actually live there. Um, and, and the quarterback situation is totally different. Miami had De'Eric King coming off an injury. And, and was clearly hurt at the beginning of the season. And then they made the transition to Tyler Van Dyke. This is Jimbo's guy. He recruited Haynes King. He decided to start Haynes King two years in a row. Now, he has Max Johnson, who's a steady SEC quarterback, that with a lack of talent last year on the offensive side of the ball with LSU, was productive. And with your boy, I'm not going to toot my own horn because I don't have a horn in front of me, but if I did, I would toot it right now. <laughs> but your boy told you last week, don't be fooled by Haynes King's stats. The guy is erratic. And if he plays against the Hurricanes, he's going to throw a couple picks. And I like that. But apparently Jimbo doesn't see it. Apparently Jimbo wants to ride with this guy for some reason. I mean, to me, the only reason you would ride with this guy is if you feel he adds something to the run game. But he hasn't done that either. That was the point. He's the athletic guy. He's the guy that can give you the explosive play in the run game and has the arm to get the ball down the field. But he can't hit the broad side of a barn. This dude is, and he's not escaping anybody in the run game. He's not creating explosive plays with his legs. So what do you do? This guy is fast, straight line. But if you watch him play, he's not elusive. He's not Jordan Travis. He might be faster straight line than Jordan Travis, but he's not elusive like Jordan Travis. So where do you go from here if you're Jimbo Fisher? If I'm Jimbo Fisher, I'm pulling his ass and I'm putting Max Johnson in there because at the end of the day, you've got all these weapons on the outside and you've got a great running back, a speedy running back that you can get the ball to in space and make plays then just get a guy that can give him the ball. You don't need a guy to throw it 50 yards down the field all the time. Just give him the ball in their hands and let him make plays. And that's it. That's what he's got to do. Well, I have a boatload of stats and notes here of stuff that I want to I want to talk about on the show. We will get into Texas A&M a little bit more and maybe discuss them as we kind of go along the way here. But we do also want to sort of review Southern Miss uh, and the way that game turned out for Miami because it only took them six quarters. Uh, they were booing Mario Cristobal and the Hurricanes. Uh, on Saturday in that first half when it was seven to three, and uh, yeah, I would say even after it was ten to seven, they still weren't happy. It was it wasn't until they came out in that second half, stopped them, forced a three and out right away, and then went down the field, uh, ten runs on a thirteen play scoring drive where they pounded it and took the lead for good and, and kind of set the tone for the day. But I want to get into a lot of things. We have the mail uh, the mail bag to get into. I asked for for some questions earlier tonight, so we're going to answer those questions like we always do whenever we have you on here. Um, but let's start with uh, Southern Miss and, and that performance in particular. What stood out to you the most, Carlos? Uh, let's start with offense, uh, and then we'll, we'll shift over to defense. So the first thing that stood out to me was TVD is, is human. Like he's, he, We've come into this season forgetting his early struggles, and a lot of people expected him to be Heisman candidate, number one, right off the jump and be perfect. And you know the way he performed against Bethune-Cookman, you, you kind of expected him to continue that progression. But obviously, we all understand what they were playing in week one was nothing compared to the rest of the schedule. That was essentially a scout team they were going up against in week one. Um, TVD looked uncomfortable. His, his throwing motion was off. 
he was locking on to receivers. He wasn't reading the defense. Uh, he wasn't reading his progression across the field and was making throws that were a little bit questionable at times. You know, you saw that jump ball to Rashard Smith that thankfully came down with it. That interception on the sideline was ill-advised. He locked onto that receiver. Um, he missed Will Mallory on a seam route where he had him open and just didn't throw it in the right position. Missed Will Mallory on a third down, throwing it low at his feet. He had a couple of throws like that that got away from him that's uncharacteristic. So I don't know what was going on with him. He talked about, you said it in your article, you wrote it, that he was talking about his uh, his mechanics were off. And he was thinking about going to the facility later that day to try and work on some of that stuff, that he was getting his elbow down. And when you get that elbow down, the, the accuracy tends to, to come off. One of the things I noticed was on a lot of those throws that were low, his arm angle was too tight to his body. So he was throwing it from a low arm angle, so which was naturally making the ball end up lower on his throw. Um, you normally see most quarterbacks, or even him, with an, a higher arm angle and coming down from up here as opposed to tight to his shoulder pad. Um, the other thing I noticed was, you know, I expected the three three five from from Southern Miss to give the Hurricane offensive line a challenge. Uh, just because there's so many angles and so many stunts and so many games they could play with that odd front and those linebackers, and that gave them problems early on. But luckily, they, they they caught up to it late in the first half, just in the second half, and got through that. And I mean, as far as the offense, I think it, it was impressive that they were able to weather the storm, get their stuff together, get collected, regroup, and then get some positive plays going. It just wasn't a dominant performance. It was up and down, and they sputtered. To me, it looked like they may have been looking ahead to, to A&M. Uh, to be quite frank. Yeah, I mean, I think in the first half, they probably thought, well, this team was 3-9 and nine last year, right? We're just going to come out, shut down Frank Gore Jr., and we're going to take over and dominate. And what happened was they they unleashed their freshman, who was actually a pretty good quarterback. I thought he was pretty uh, impressive, especially under pressure against Miami in that first half. And, you know, they, they kind of took the wind out of Miami sales a little bit when they scored on that touchdown pass when Malik Curtis got beat. Uh, on a 33-yard touchdown pass. He actually got beat on the play before, too, so it was a, kind of a, a rough back-to-back. Oh, yeah. back. They, they um, doubled Dragon's his ass. They back-to-backed him. Uh, yeah. Like, like Drake <laughs> and McMill. Uh, but you know what? The, the funny thing is the Hurricanes have this streak going for some reason that every time a first-time starting quarterback or a freshman starting quarterback goes up against them, they get lit up by them. Right. I don't know when this all started. I mean, it might have started with Kenny Pickett. Right. But, uh, think, that's been, where it really did. <laughs> Yeah, and I think that's it's continued since then, and it's it's freaking ridiculous at this point. Getting back to TBD, I don't want to get off point, but I guess I was what I was trying to make was make the point that you know the, I think they they were kind of a little stunned in the beginning that they were in a ball game seven to three. Um, but what was positive was you know they they answered the bell in the second half and dominated the way they should. They didn't finish drives. It wasn't you know they didn't cover the spread, uh, which I think was twenty six points. They only ended up winning by twenty three. But I thought all in all. Um, they answered the bell in a way that they they hadn't done in terms of adversity. But get getting to to DVD for a second, um, second lowest passing grade he's gotten in the start. The other one, the worst, the only game that was worse was North Carolina. Um, just kept clean. He was sixteen of twenty three for two hundred one yards and a touchdown with an interception. Actually, pretty good under pressure. Five of seven on twelve dropbacks uh, for fifty nine yards off play action. Five of seven for seventy nine yards and a touchdown. So. Look, they're not running a whole lot like you like you mentioned a week ago, right? They're not running a lot of RPO stuff. It's the very traditional uh, type of offense where you know he's dropping back from under center, you know, faking a handoff, looking down the field whenever they run play action. Maybe that's part of what's changed and, and why maybe he's not seeing the field as well. Maybe you know uh, coming under center instead of being in the shotgun and being able to overlook the defense from the start. I don't know. Um, those are questions that I think we can ask probably here in the coming days. Um, you know, how much his 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 view has changed because he was in the shotgun a lot more than he has been. Well, it's 
I think it's a it's a combination of things, right? So if you look at the numbers, like you said, under pressure, five of seven, he he, he was more efficient under pressure than he was uh, when he was just facing uh, when a clean pocket. And here's the reason why: when he's facing a clean pocket, he was generally facing three or four rushers, and they're dropping seven, eight, and mixing coverages on him and making right. him read the field. Whereas if they're blitzing, if they're coming with pressure, they're getting in his face. That narrows the scope of where he can go with the football, and it also mm-hmm. makes it easier because now you're probably facing man to man or some sort of a one-high zone or something that he could work off of, and it's easier for him to find an open receiver off that. Whereas if they make him read the field, which is what Florida State did early on, they just rushed the front four against him, got pressure that way, but also played games behind them in the coverage and made him read the field where he ended up throwing a couple of interceptions early in the game. Uh, and that's been the knock on TBD is can he read the field? And we thought he had progressed. We, we had made some strides. But he's been used to you know coming off of last year running a lot of one-read throws or two-read throws uh, and having the, that security blanket of Charleston Rambo and Mike Harley, where he could just throw the ball down the field and let Charleston Rambo make a play or throw it underneath and know that Harley's going to be there. And you see that he goes to Restructo a lot as that security blanket now, but he's got nobody else to pair with him on the outside to be that deep threat to continue to open the field. Yeah, I think that was another issue. Uh, when we learned after the game that, I guess, uh, Xavier Restrepo had been dinged up in practice, so he wasn't even 100%. He didn't start the game, by the way. I don't know if you noticed that. Uh, he only played 29 snaps. Um, you know, obviously Miami's going with a lot of two tight end sets early in game, so it's only leaving two receivers on the field. But I mean, X still ended up leaving the team in, in receptions. He had six catches for 72 yards. Michael Redding again came through with some, with a good performance. Uh, you know, five five targets, three catches for 40 yards. Keyshawn Schmidt, Smith had the touchdown after not even being targeted at all the week before. They got him the ball on a on, a, on an end around. Um, Bashard Smith, I thought, had the catch of the day. Uh, that first catch where he where he kind of skied and, and and was able to pull it out of the sky when when TVD was kind of errant early on for the first completion, uh, four catches on four targets for fifty two yards. Um, if you look at the snap count, they only had six receivers and and Jacoby George will be back this week. By the way, suspension is over. But I asked, I asked Josh Gaddis, what does that mean? We asked Josh Gaddis today, what does that mean? He says he still got to go out there and earn his spot. So uh, who knows? I don't. It doesn't sound to me like Jacoby George will be playing a whole lot right away. Um, but in terms of uh, snaps um, for, you know, for the game, Keyshawn Smith, 58, Redding, 55, Restrepo, 29, Frank Ladson, 26, Brinson, 24, and and uh, Rashard Smith, 22. So that's the way they divvied it up in terms of opportunities. Um, you saw Frank Lanson wasn't targeted. He kind of got the Keyshawn Smith treatment from week one. Um, my, my biggest thing is watching, watching it from 600 feet, right? Where I'm, I'm up in the press box. Um, it, it seems to me like th- there's not a lot of separation. And I asked Gaddis today, I said, is that an issue at all where maybe guys just aren't, when he's looking down the field, there's just, he doesn't see anything. He doesn't see anybody open. Um, and he says, look, the receivers are doing their job. They're catching the ball. Um, but the reality is, and this is sort of an overlying thing, we've been talking about it since the preseason. Unless somebody emerges, this offense is going to be limited. And I think we're going to see them, Carlos, play the kind of style that they did on Saturday against Southern Miss in second half, where you become a run-dominant team. And I guess my question to you is, A, is TVD going to sw- swallow that? Is he going to be okay with that? And B, uh, can they win like this in your mind? Well, I think at the end of the day, what you do as a team, and especially as a coaching staff, is you want to put your team in the best position to win. So that means you want to maximize the talent you have, the advantages you have, and play to your strength. So you don't want to be in a position where you are trying to throw the ball 50 times a game down the field when you don't have the players on the outside to do that. We saw the early struggles also 
were because for the first time, I mean, this this game, they came out throwing the ball a little bit more than they did against Bethune. They, they really tried to get TVD active early, and he was just off. Um, as opposed to, you know, harping on getting the running game going, getting that, that, that push up front at the beginning of the game. I think in the long run, can, will TVD swallow it? Yes, if it, if it bears results, if it bears wins. I think at the end of the day, if he comes to understand that if the running game is going, it's going to help him off play action. It's going to create more separation with the, for the receivers just based on the fact that they have to respect the run game and the kind of boxes and then, then the defense has to create and the single coverage they have to have on the outside to try and stop the run he's definitely going to be okay with it. He's going to be down with it because he's going to see the results. He's not going to have to throw it 40 times a game to get 350 yards. He could throw it 25, 27 times a game and still get 302 touchdowns or three touchdowns if they're running the offense right. And even as as bad as he looked early on, he still had over 250 passing, right? Yep. And a, and a touchdown. And that's playing with half a tight end because Bull Mallory was nowhere to be found in this game. Yeah, it, it's like he's gone back into witness protection like he did in the first half of last season. Um you know, Will, they they tried to throw the bottom. I think he was targeted four times. Elijah Royal, only one catch for five yards. Gaddis today was asked about the tight ends, you know, maybe not being involved in the offense as, more, as much. I would say, you know, one aspect to it was in the second half, Anes Cooper, your freshman offensive tackle was your tight end, wearing that 37 jersey. He was in there to block a ton. You had Zion Nelson in there as a sixth offensive lineman, um, you know, blocking on both the left and the right side. Um, and they just went run heavy sets and 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 decided, hey, we're going to take control of this game playing this way. So, but but why did they add Adonis Cooper? Because Will Mallory wasn't blocking the soul out there. There was actually a run where you could see he mm-hmm. was he was coming around to lead for Thad Franklin on a run, and he wanted no part of the contact inside to block his man. And Thad Franklin literally ran him over and pushed him out of the way. Right, makes you wonder how healthy that shoulder really is. Um, you know, anytime you have one of those shoulder injuries, man, we saw how debilitating it was last year for different guys. Tyler, Tyreek Stevenson didn't finish the season. Uh, you know, different guys were were dealing with it throughout the year. So, um, unfortunately, it's just part of the game. Um, the running game, you know, Henry Parrish, look, they screwed up the box score. I was going to go to your house Saturday night, right? I, I called you. I'm like, I'm waiting for the stats. The stats were all screwed up. So, I don't know what the right stats are. I'm just telling you what the official box score said. Um, you know, as far as what the numbers have here. So if anything screwed up and you're listening to our show, you're saying, what the hell, man? You know, this is that's not what he did. That's not what he ran for. I will tell you that the stats were screwed up on Saturday night. So some numbers uh, may may be off. Uh, if I'm not mistaken, um, uh, Henry Parrish ran for over 90. I think it's 97 yards and a touchdown in this game. Just missed the 100 yard mark. I know other other I think ESPN had him for over 100 yards um, in the end. It was the commitment to the running game that really is what struck me more than anything is like, okay, hey, we're going to take control of this game. We're going to do it on the backs of our running backs. Uh, Thaddeus Franklin ran well. Jalen Knighton, I think, had five carries for 17 yards in the game. Um, Didn't, you know, wasn't really healthy enough yet. They're trying to get him back to full strength this week uh, with fast practices. Same story with Zion Nelson. Um, so they're trying to come back. They're trying to get them to play at a high level, but it just seems like for now in the early going, it still really is only a two running back show until Knighton can prove he's healthy. Yeah, and, and the stats that I have here from PFF, which I also saw on, on ESPN and Sports Reference, had Parrish for 23 attempts for 108 yards. Mm-hmm. Um, and they had Knighton for 6 for 20, bad 12 for 50. The, the interesting stat to me on, on Parrish um, on PFF was that he had 65 yards after contact. Mm-hmm. Which is which is impressive. I mean, yeah. he's not the biggest dude in the world, but he runs hard, man. And every time he runs a ball, he's falling forward, and he's getting an extra two, two, three yards every time he falls forward. Same thing with that. Every time he runs the football, 
he's he's leaning forward. He's falling forward. He's not getting hit in the backfield and dragged back. He's 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 got those powerful legs. So it's interesting to see that. I'd like to see now that mix of adding Jalen Knight and a little bit more. See him on wide zone runs where he can plant and go, and use his speed. So I think the running game, once they got adjusted to what the front was doing from Southern Mississippi, mm-hmm. they ran the ball a lot better. Once they also incorporated in his Cooper because they didn't have a tight end to block because Will Mallory wasn't able to do it, so they brought in the extra offensive lineman and they decided to go heavy. They were really dominating up front and, and knocking guys back. So, I mean, they, they look good. I think they're, they're getting adjusted still to this style of football because, again, they're, they're not used to this, this sort of uh, action in terms of how they run the football. They were a, a zone-heavy team last year. They flipped the script on that. Now they're almost exclusively gap scheme, meaning power runs, pulling guys. Um, this game, they ran it 41 times, 43 times. Of the 41 called runs, 32 were gap plays, meaning power plays, meaning guys right. pulling through and leading only nine zone plays. So it's a bit it's a bit of an adjustment for the offensive line in terms of how they read the defense and how they block the schemes. And when you're having to adjust to that with a, a front that moves stunts and brings different angles at you because of the way they play with that odd front, it can confuse you. But they, they locked it down in the second half and did a good job. I thought they bounced back pretty well. From what I saw on PFF, I think Appalachian State ran it 50 times for 197 yards and a touchdown. They mixed up the zone and the gap, actually. I think it was like a 22 to 21 or something like that ratio. Um, Cameron Peoples, uh, who who did well against Miami last year, 6'2", 225, so he's a big back. 19 carries, 112 yards, including a 48-yard run that essentially put the game away in the fourth quarter. Uh, he had 99 yards after contact, forced uh Four missed tackles. Um, I was looking at runs between the tackles, 80 yards on 20 runs between the tackles for Appalachian State in this game. So four yards a carry running between the tackles is pretty good. Nowadays in college football, everybody tries to stuff that middle, right, and and, and then kind of rally on the outside and, and set the edge. I think, you know, that's sort of a promising sign for Miami where if they get good offensive line play in this game, they might be able to sort of enforce their will as good as Texas A&M is on defense and in that front in terms of pass rushing and in the secondary where I think they're good. Um, I think Miami can, can, can move some guys around um, and it's going to be interesting to see how they decide to attack them. But I think the key for, for TVD this week is going to be getting the ball out quickly. He's not going to have a lot of time to throw. He's kind of got to make a quick read, get the ball loose. If you go back and you watch Chase Bryce in that game, when he was effective, as you mentioned, it was getting the ball out quick. You know, a lot of H-back, a lot of tight end, short throws. Um, there weren't many throws deep down the field where he was beating them. So, um, you know, it's it's going to look like a very similar game plan, I think, to this week, uh, the way they played against Southern Miss in the second half. Right, and I think you're, you're going to count for Miami's talent at, at the skill position. So although the receiver room isn't great right now, you know, Restrepo is, is playing really well. Uh, you know, you've, you've seen something out of Reading that's dependable, reliable. And it's interesting not only to get more snaps on Frank Ladson, but they also ran stuff for him where they would move him in motion and swing him around and get him the ball in the open field right. because they trust him to catch the ball and make a play. So that's that's good to see. Um, you know, Keyshawn Smith it can open it up now, hopefully continues that uh, against A&M. But I think the style is going to be a little bit different than App State. App State ran it, like you said, 50 times. By the way, you stole a bunch of stats that I had written down here. The 99 <laughs> yards after contact. The 50 rushes. <laughs> now I've scratched the whole half of my paper up. But thank you. I appreciate it. I won't, I won't do it anymore. I promise. We gotta, this is why we have to have meetings before we go on this show. We never do. We just say, hey, you ready? Okay, let's do it. We but both did mind. our homework. We both did, we both our, did homework. our homework. We both did our homework. But you, you cheated off mine. Anyway, so um, it's, it's going to be a game plan where really they have to protect the football, first and foremost. Uh, I don't think they're going to control the ball like App State did. Um, that was just 
a rarity. It was insane. And if you take away that 48-yard run from Peoples, I think they, they only averaged 3.2 yards a carry. Right. So it was basically three yards in a cloud of dust the whole game, just wearing them down and holding the possession. Um, they ran 80 plays, and Texas A&M only ran 38, which is insane. Right. Yeah, that's so, that was the key to the game is keeping keeping A and M's offense off the field and and getting off the field on third down. That that's what worked for them. And uh, you know, by the way, Josh Gaddis was asked about that. You know, um, today the offensive coordinator from Miami. You know, are you okay sort of playing that style? And he said, Yeah. I mean, this is a guy who was at Michigan, right? <laughs> if he had to those three or four yard gains win games. That was his direct quote. Those three and four yard gains win games. And as long as not- you're moving the chains on the third on the third play, that's all that matters. And and you and I talked about this Saturday night when I was at your house and we were watching the, the Gators lose. Um, you know, in the end, like it's a different style that everybody's used to, right? Everybody's gone to running spread offenses. So these defenses, they're not used to playing grind it out, hey, wrap up, make the tackle. And and if you I mean, I again I listened to all these interviews. I really think if you look at the stats, Appalachian State wore them down in the fourth quarter. Like there's only so many run plays you can swallow as a defense before you start missing tackles. And again, Texas A&M, 11 missed tackles in this game. Um, that's that's not a good number uh, against it's a it's, a it's a minuscule number compared to what we were putting up last week. <laughs> right. 30 against Michigan State, right? Um, but no, I, I, I think, um, look, I, I think Miami, you know, a lot of people have been asking me, and, and we have some mailback questions we're going to get to that, that touch on this a little bit, but has your opinion changed going into this game? Did I think Miami could could beat Texas A&M at the start of the season? No. I think obviously seeing the way Appalachian State beat them, not just that they beat them, but the way that they beat them, I think suits up well for Miami with the way that they're playing. Yeah, and I think, like you said, the, the difference is when you're playing a team like App State or, or the way we're certainly playing now in terms of the heavier sets of run game focus, you're they're not used to playing teams that are going to bang on them all game long. So essentially what Mario wants to do and what App State did to him is they want to put him in a phone booth and they want to fight and they want to get in there close and they want to bang and they want to throw punches. And that's how they feel comfortable playing on offense. And that's good. Yeah. That's the yeah. culture shift that you're seeing here. Can, can they execute it all the way yet? They're not there yet. They don't have the bodies to do it against every team. But I think all App State's opened the door to show them the game plan for getting success Saturday and doing the same thing just in their own way. Um, and the difference also is like when you're playing against spread teams and your own team, uh, is spread so you're working against that during the summer and fall camp at spring camp and you're not used to you know you know three and out punt whatever and having to wait to get the ball back because you're used to other teams going fast also so even if they have a six seven play drive it's quick you get the ball back you get back in the flow of the game whereas against a team like app state that's really extending every play running the clock down as much as they can every time they run a run a play six seven plays turns to eight nine minutes and you're sitting on the sideline like what the hell's going on here and it's demoralizing. And the other thing it did is, more importantly than anything else, it took the 12th man out of the game completely. Those yeah. fans were silent. They had to sit there and watch App State hold the ball for 40-something minutes and just sit there and sit on their hands and wait and see something. if something would happen. Anything would happen. And all they got was one offensive touchdown and a kick return for a touchdown. If not, they would have just been crying in their beer all game. <laughs> Couple numbers on Miami's offensive line. Um, I mentioned Nelson, Zion Nelson coming back. Fifteen uh, snaps at left tackle, five at right tackle. Uh, didn't allow a pressure. Uh, graded out second best among Miami's offensive linemen. Justice Oluwashun, the right guard, graded out on top. Even after he gave up a sack and three pressures, uh, had the highest run blocking grade for Miami. Uh, Jalen Rivers and Jakai Clark were the uh, only starters to play all 
30 all 83 snaps at the same position. DJ Scaife moved inside the right guard for five snaps when, when Nelson was at right tackle. Uh, and then John Campbell, I think, played uh, somewhere in the range of 68 snaps or something of that nature, the, the, the 20 or so plays that uh, Zion Nelson was in. So, And then you had Cooper as that extra blocking tight end. So uh, I, I, I looked up. I wanted to see. I, I know it's a small sample size, but after two games, um, you got three of the top 17 ACC offensive linemen playing for Miami in terms of the grading. Oliver Shun is six, Scaife is seventh, John Campbell at number 17. Obviously, I did it with the guys who actually played. Zion Nelson just has too small of a sample size. But again, you know, three in the top 17 is pretty good for the conference. That tells you your offensive line is taking care of business on most snaps. Yeah, absolutely. And as as much as they bounce back in the run game and they they run blocked a lot better in the second half, you know, outside of Justice Olawasun, uh, their their average run blocking grade for the unit was fifty six point four three, which is not good. Mm-hmm. It's below average, and they still were able to get it going in the second half. So that's that's one of those things where you know if they were bad statistically in terms of what PFF is saying, and they were still able to get it rolling. If these guys are on point, you can imagine what it could look like. Yeah. Let's talk about the defense. Um, only gave up seven points. Held Frank Gore Jr. Uh, to a, you know, really a, he was more like a, what's the word I'm looking for? A decoy. He wasn't really even. <laughs> yeah, I think even... uh, it was like the old Michael Jordan joke. Like, who's the only person that ever held Michael Jordan under twenty points? And it was Dean Smith. Right. I think I think uh, Southern Miss's head coach has a little something to do with that because yeah, he, he only gave him ten touches. Yeah, he uh, he relied on his true freshman at quarterback. He's only one of three true freshmen uh, to start a game this year. Um, and look, in the end, uh, he did his job. Um, uh, Miami did its job, uh, shutting him down. Um, overall, I'm gonna look at some of these numbers. Like I said earlier, just five missed tackles for Miami's defense compared to 10 in the opener. Cam Kitchens, Mitchell Lagude, Corey Flagg, to Corey Couch, and Tyreek Stevenson. Those were the five missed tackles for the game. Um, 24 yards on 23 carries, uh, for Southern Miss's offense. Um, it look. Obviously, it's going to be a different challenge this week. Uh, but I thought, you know, Southern Miss had some good size on its offensive line. And, yes, Miami was sort of waiting for the super back. They waited an entire half, uh, not really pass rushing, waiting for Frank Gore to get the ball. It never happened. And then they decided, okay, we're going to cut loose. In the end, I think Miami ended up with 24 pressures in the game individually. Um, you know, on 35 dropbacks, uh, Zach Wilkie, the freshman quarterback, was pressured 20 times. So, uh, that's a good percentage, 20 out of 35. And, and I know most of us sat there saying, hey, not enough sacks, not enough big plays. But look, you're getting you're, you're getting in the backfield. You're forcing the quarterback to speed up. And I think eventually it'll come. It's disappointing that there haven't been more sacks, that they haven't finished more of those pressures. Um, but I think a lot of that has to do with the fact that we're throwing the ball, getting it pretty quickly. Even when they were going down the field, it wasn't a deep drop. It was just a one, two, three, throw it down the sideline and see if they can come up with it. Um, the other thing the, the defensive line did really well in the second half was, like you said, rather than waiting for the super back and looking to read and react, they were actually doing their job and clogging up the lanes and getting in their gaps and occupying offensive linemen to allow the linebackers to flow, which allowed Corey Flagg to have his best game. I think one of the best games he's had in terms of a run run defense grade. Uh, he led the team, I think it was like an 84.3 or something like that in the run, in, uh, the run grade. Run defense. Yeah. yeah, exactly. Let me get that out there before you steal that stat. Um <laughs> and it was there was one play that was really indicative of it. I saw, you know, the defensive line occupied the offensive lineman, crashed everything down, it allowed the Corey flag to come around the edge, meet the running back after his momentum had slowed and he started sliding laterally and meet him in the hole. And that's where his bread and butter is. He's not good tackling people in space. He got shook on a missed tackle 
uh, in the game as well when he was trying to tackle somebody in space. But there, when they slow the guy down enough where he's trying to move laterally and Corey Flagg is there to make the play right off the edge or right in the hole, he can do that. But, you know, obviously he's limited. But he still is the linebacker they trust the most. He got the most snaps uh, at linebacker. And then they spread it out amongst everybody else. And it doesn't seem like anybody else is really ready to take that next step. Wesley Bethane showed some flashes, but obviously I think he's not ready yet. He's still too too young and frail. He's got to build his body up a little bit more. He might be ready in the second half of the season. But right now it's Corey Flagg and everybody else just trying to figure it out at linebacker. Well, I asked Steele today about linebackers, and it seems to me, I mean, you heard Mario's quote last week saying, you know, we're, we're working every hour on the day to get uh, Wesley Bethane ready. Chase Smith played eight snaps. Uh, this game, he doubled his, his rep total from the game before. Uh, Bassanth played nine, which is the same he did in the opener. I think you're just going to continue to see them get maybe, you know, 15, 20% of the snaps at the position and then, you know, kind of build on positivity. In other words, don't have, you know, what happened to Malik Curtis, right? Where you play, you, you start the game, you play four snaps, you, you get beat, and that's a tough thing to sort of take home. I think they want everything on these guys is building confidence, building not only their confidence, but the coach's confidence in them to trust them to do everything that's their responsibility. And so, um, you know, Mario said today, Malik Curtis, poor technique. He let his te- he forgot his technique on those two two plays that he got beaten on. And um, but anyway, I mean, look, he's not a, he's not a slow guy. He's obviously one of the faster guys in the right. team. And when you get beat down the sideline like that, it's definitely technique. He missed a guy, didn't get gave him a free release, and just got beat off the ball. Um, getting back to the to the running game real quick, Devin Achain is the is the running back for Texas A and played all thirty nine snaps. He's the only obviously they didn't have to go to the bench, they didn't have enough uh, plays to run. Uh, but five nine, one hundred eighty five pounds, track guy, seven yards per carry last season, um, ten carries, sixty six yards, and a touchdown uh, in the loss to App State. Um, and a, and yard, a kickoff return for a touchdown. Right, the the long kick which was next. I'm glad you got that out. He did score on an RPO from about twenty yards out. Um, that was his his uh, only one missed tackle forced um, in that game. So it's not like he's got it's it's sort of that hit hit the hole and take off type of guy. Not a whole lot of shimmy shake in in him. Even though I looked last year, I think he had thirty six missed tackles forced. But the first two games, not a whole lot of flashing his moves. Um, by the way, Appalachian State's defensive coordinator Dale Jones played for Kevin Steele at Tennessee. So there's your connection between. Um, oh, look at that. <laughs> um, Steele today was asked, can you take something from what they did? And, and you know, he said, look, uh, 38 plays, 39 plays. If they played 10 times, it, it, that would be the only game that it happened in the long run. So um, and, and they forced turnovers. That was a big key in that game, too. I mean, they stripped the ball out of the hands of one of AM's receivers, um, one of their more talented young players. Uh, they 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 you know, uh, two forced fumble on Haynes King um, and and one where the offensive lineman picked it up, tried to run with it. He fumbled and lost. I mean, Appalachian State did almost everything perfect to win that game, which is why, yes, they lost to Appalachian State. You can't sit here, though, and have this attitude that they're going to go in there and do the same exact thing. Absolutely. And I don't think you're you're going to see the same Texas A&M team uh, against uh, Saturday night. I think, obviously, they, they seem to have gone into that game looking ahead also and sort of sleepwalking through it, thinking they could just beat this team without much effort. And before they knew it, they were in a dogfight. And when they tried to scramble to get into it and, and get the win, there was nothing they could do. I mean, by the time they tried to react, App State was running it down their throat and holding the ball for 197 minutes before they can get back on the field. Um, so it's it's going to be a different Texas A&M team. There's going to be a different environment there. They're not going to lay down for Miami. They're going to be pissed off. They're going to be ready. And we should expect their best shot Saturday night. 
and it's not going to be easy. I think the Canes can win, but I don't think it's going to be an easy one. It'll be a slugfest. Looking for an assist with your credit card but can't get a hold of anyone? Luckily, with 24-7 U.S.-based live customer service from Discover, everyone has the option to talk to a real person anytime, day or night. Yep, you heard that right. You can talk to a real human and customer service at any time. Sounds like a real game changer if you ask us. Make the right call and get the service you deserve with Discover. Limitations apply. See terms at discover.com slash credit card. And now, two pigeons bemoaning the fact you can stream DirecTV satellite free. You see this? A family watching baseball on DirecTV with no satellite dish in sight. Let's heckle them. You call that changing the channel? Choke up on the remote, buddy. I hope getting all these games on DirecTV makes up for your mother not pre-chewing your sunflower seeds. DirecTV has the most MLB games. Visit DirecTV.com. Claim based on total games offered on national and regional sports networks with choice package or higher. Availability of RSNs varies by zip code and package. High-speed internet service required. Terms and restrictions apply. As you've probably heard by now, we've teamed up with BetMGM this season. We'll be using BetMGM lines to make all of our picks, and we'll have special offers for our listeners each week. If you haven't signed up for BetMGM yet, use bonus code THEATHLETIC, and you'll get a one-year subscription to The Athletic, plus up to a $1,500 first bet offer on your first wager with BetMGM. Here's how it works. Download the BetMGM app and sign up using bonus code THEATHLETIC. Make your first deposit of at least $10. Place your first bet on any game and claim your voucher for a one-year subscription to The Athletic. See BetMGM.com for terms. U.S. promotional offers not available in D.C., Mississippi, New York, Nevada, Ontario, or Puerto Rico. Gambling problem? Call 1-800-GAMBLER. Available in the U.S. Call 877-8-HOPE-NY or text HOPE-NY 467-369 in New York. Call 1-800-NEXT-STEP in Arizona. 1-800-327-5050 in Massachusetts. 1-800-BETS-OFF in Iowa. 1-800-270-7117 for confidential help in Michigan. 1-800-981-0023 in Puerto Rico. First bet offer for new customers only in partnership with Kansas Crossing Casino and Hotel. Don't forget, if you haven't signed up for BetMGM yet, use bonus code THEATHLETIC and you'll get a one-year subscription to The Athletic plus up to a $1,500 first bet offer on your first wager. Hey, it's Kaylee Cuoco for Priceline. Ready to go to your happy place for a happy price? Well, why didn't you say so? Just download the Priceline app right now and save up to 60% on hotels. So whether it's Cousin Kevin's Kazoo concert in Kansas City, go Kevin! Or Becky's Bachelorette Bash in Bermuda. You never have to miss a trip ever again. So download the Priceline app today. Your savings are waiting. Go to your happy place for a happy price. Go to your happy price, Priceline. By the way, uh, good news for Miami. Akeem Mesador looks like he will be back this week. He had a uh, sandal on his foot, kind of a foot brace, whatever. Um, Mario said it was kind of a minor thing that happened to him last week. Uh, he's expected to be uh, full speed on Tuesday for practice. So we'll see whether or not he's really ready. Um, but that's a big, big kind of player you need in this game if you're going to win it. Um, another little sort of tidbit from today, everybody was panicking over Avante Williams. Uh, Vontae didn't end up playing uh, defense. I think he had nine special team sna- uh, snaps against Southern Miss. He was on the kickoff return and the kick coverage team. Um, but sort of a strong message from Mario today of, yeah, I saw he he deleted all of his Miami Hurricane references on his social media page, but I frankly don't give a damn. Uh, I talked to him. I like the kid, but he's got to earn his playing time. Just because he's upset he's not playing is <laughs> not going to be – uh, some and, and so it's kind of a different approach from Manny, right? Where 
Manny was maybe viewed as a coddler a little bit. Like, I'm going to coddle some of these guys. I know Avante Williams uh, was very, very close with the previous coaching staff that was here before, uh, including Ephraim Banda, who, who recruited him uh, out of the Orlando area. Um, but it's a new. there's a new sheriff in town, and whatever games he thinks he was going to play didn't, didn't pan out for him. Yeah, and I mean, it, we got one of those uh, questions. Uh, one of the Twitter questions was about the culture shift, and that's a great example of it right there. You know that the Mario's not gonna not gonna put up with anybody. I don't care how good you are, if you are gonna act that way, if you're gonna act like a diva, if you're gonna place yourself above the team, and and what it is we're trying to build culturally, then you're not gonna be in, right? It's a circle of trust, Fokker. You're not you're gonna be outside the circle of trust if you don't fall in line, right? Yeah. And there's a, like you said, there's a new sheriff in town. It ain't Reggie Hammond. It's Mario Cristobal, and he's putting a foot in everybody's ass, and he's he's not putting up with that kind of stuff. So it's good to see. The other thing I think was indicative of the culture shift, and forgive me for answering the mailbag question early, is like we said, that ability to actually adjust at halftime, come yeah. back and execute and, and take over a game after they struggled or in the past, that wouldn't be the case. Yeah. A couple other defensive notes I wanted to get to. Um, first of all, they played, I think it was 13 defensive linemen. So it, it just as deep uh, with the rotation as they were in the first game. They're not changing from that. Linebacker, I think you had eight different guys get in there. Ultimately, you know, as we mentioned earlier, it's pretty much – uh, Corey Flagg and Wayman Steed. Um, we've mentioned the pass rush. Uh, kudos for Leonard Taylor for the uh, sack and, and tackle for loss. That was a nice little sort of window into his kind of talent, what he can do when he starts to get on a roll. Um, I mentioned Haynes King, 13 of 27 for 97 yards earlier, the quarterback for Texas A&M. Um, this was an interesting stat. Uh, he was under pressure on only three of his 24 dropbacks, um, not blitzed once by uh, by Appalachian State. So they basically stayed in coverage against them. Um, Miami, could they do the same and win? I mean, they could. I think if they trust our defensive line enough to get pressure on Haynes King, I think they could. And, and I think the game plan with Haynes King was similar to what I was talking about with Tyler Van Dyke earlier, is don't make it easy on him by locking up and going man-to-man and letting him find one of the athletes and throwing it up to him. Make him read coverage, play games on the back, and make him read through a defense, which he's proven he can't do. Uh, along with him being erratic throwing the ball, that's a bad combination. He'll put some up for grabs. I mean, he, he only had, I think it was a, an average of like 4.5 yards per attempt. Not that Chase Bryce was any better, but he couldn't get the ball down the field. Uh, he couldn't even get the ball within the, you know, in a five-yard radius within yeah. the line of scrimmage. So it, it confused him and made him take longer with his reads and, and took longer to get rid of the football. Um, which really slowed the offense and offense down and made them get out of sync. So I think they can do it. The issue is, um, like if I'm Texas A&M, I'm going into the game and I'm doing the same thing Southern missed it. I'm going to try Miami's corners. Uh, I don't trust Miami's corners. I don't think they can cover one-on-one. And they really have an issue covering what's called the glance route or what you would call a, a deep slant or short post or a bang eight off the RPO action. We are, we are terrible at it for some reason. Uh, every time you see somebody run that route, and run that action, you see DJ Ivy trailing five yards behind as the guy catches the ball in front of him. Tyreek Stevenson's a little bit better, but he closes late still, and they get five, six, seven, eight yards of pop every time they run that sort of action. So Miami has to find a way to stop that, because if I'm Texas A&M, I'm opening up with those glance routes, and then I'm also trying to throw verticals down the sideline on you to see if your corners can cover us one-on-one. And once that happens, and you open up, once you hit those glance routes, you open up wheels coming out of the backfield for the running back. If the if you're If you're playing cover two, and the corner runs with that slant, and you could sneak that back out of the backfield and get him up the sideline. So if I'm A&M, that's what I'm trying to do. 
Uh, I'm also trying to get the running game going. I mean, they averaged 6.6 yards a, a carry with a chain. They should have given the guy the ball more. And I think Jimbo got stubborn throwing the ball that much with Haynes King just because he felt like he can get the ball to his athletes and start getting the score up and start boat racing these guys. And he didn't use his, his running back uh, enough, in my opinion. Look at you throwing out all kinds of t- terminology. The old offensive coordinator, quarterback, and you coming out. I mean, this is... It's a cigar. It's a cigar. Um, by the way, good note here. Um, AM has some size at receiver, but they're two leading guys in terms of targets, which is Evan Stewart, the five-star freshman. He's only 5'11", 170. And Anaya Smith, who's the 5'10", 190-pound senior, uh, it's not like they're going to line up with the kid Brownlee who, who, who lit up Miami, uh, the six, three receiver for, for Southern Miss, who was actually pretty good. Um, yeah. they don't have like their most reliable guys are not huge receivers. Um, they're so fast, they're fast, but they're not huge, which right. I think was clearly something that, uh, everybody took note of <laughs> against Southern Miss that if you want to beat Miami, just throw the ball up to those big receivers you got a good shot at coming down with the ball. Yeah, but and and at the same time, when you're playing with uh, with DJ Ivy, he's going to blow a coverage at one point, and those guys are going to go streaking by him. The other thing is to try and help support the corners on the outside. If you think they're going to test you down the field, and what do you do? You start having more safety help in that too high, rotating the safeties over to the sidelines quicker to make sure they have some help over the top, but then that opens up post routes and things over the middle with those slot guys, and if they catch that in space, they can go. One thing we did see Saturday is the rotation at cornerback was trimmed severely. Uh, Ivy, 50 snaps. Tyreek Stevenson, 43. To Corey Couch, 44. Couch called for pass interference. I thought it was some pretty good coverage there. He just didn't turn around, I guess. Um, and uh, Daryl Porter, who came in from West Virginia and was a starter, only played four snaps. Isaiah Dunson, three snaps and, and there at the end of garbage time. And then we mentioned Malik Curtis already. So from a coverage standpoint, um, that's kind of the way things went. Um, heavy snap totals, obviously, for James Williams and Ken Kitchens, 50 snaps each, the most on the defense. And I think Al Blades played 14. Uh, a lot of people wondering why Avante isn't in there. But if he's not holding on to his responsibilities consistently, which I got to assume is the case, uh, that's why he's not playing. And he's also got two really big-time players ahead of him, Ken Kitchens and James Williams. And yeah. James Williams, I think, may have had one of his best games as a hurricane. Played really well. He was all over the field. Uh, didn't get beaten coverage. He looked good. I think he still needs to do a better job getting over the top of routes uh, and, and that deep safety mode. He loves coming in the box and making plays and, and trying to attack the football, but I think that's where he needs to evolve his game is being sort of that deep safety guy. Um, Cam Kitchen's steady as always. His grades don't really show it, but he shows up on the field. Um, mm-hmm. To me, the answer at corner might be to Corey Couch sliding outside because he is probably their best cover guy. He is small. He's a bad tackler, but at the end of the day, if you're trying to stop guys from getting vertical on you, you want to have the guy that's the best cover guy on, on the outside. So it may make sense to either move Tyreek inside to that star position where he played a little bit uh, yeah. in the spring of fall camp or fall camp early, um, or slide DJ Ivy out and slide uh, to Corey outside and then play more with, with Gilbert Frierson or maybe Daryl Porter Jr. in the slot corner role. Special teams, Andy Borgales, ACC uh, special teams player of the week, had a, a nice long field goal. Uh, I think it was 48 yards. Um three for three on kicks and I think had five more touchbacks this week. So he's proving consistently and, and, and with a chain returning kicks, you need that. You need those touchbacks. Uh, even if there aren't a lot of them, because this is a low scoring game, uh, you, you can't give that guy uh, a crease or even an inch. And uh, that'll be important in this game. Lou Headley. I don't know what his average was. I, I didn't look it up. Um, I any think it was other- like 44 yards or something like that. 
Yeah, I mean, Lou's Lou's done a good job. I don't think I don't think anybody's even returned one yet on him. I don't remember anybody really, you know, kind of no. getting even sort of any significant. Well, he didn't punt against BCC, so this was the first time he got some action right. this year. Right, but I, I'm saying even on the punts, I don't remember anybody catching and having room to punt. Like he he does a good job making sure there's fair catches or, or you know the ball just kind of rolls dead. Um, all right, we've kind of done the A and M preview. I I don't know about you. We've talked about them pretty significantly. Anything else to add? Anything else in your notes? in terms of A&M, uh, or do we just go to the mailbag? Well, I think you're going to see something you some some differences on offense uh, that you haven't seen the first two games. I think you're going to see some concepts that the Hurricanes haven't run that they've been pocketing, right. uh, you know, waiting for this game. I think one of the concepts that you're going to see is a, a tight end throwback play where you see a lot of the action flowing one way and then throwing back to the tight end all the way across the field. I think you're also going to see, because Miami likes to use tight ends in a fullback role mm-hmm. uh, and an H role, you're going to see some plays because of the actions they run with their run game where they're leading through with that H-back and a guard where that H-back is going to take a seam up the middle of the field and and be available to be hit down the field uh, off that action, off play action. So that's something they could run. They still haven't run any sort of halfback rail or wheel routes out of the backfield with the Jalen Knight or Henry Parrish. They haven't done that kind of stuff yet. So just just be ready. I think they're going to have some stuff ready for A&M. They're going to use the backs a lot more in the passing game, I think, um, than they have up to now. And I think maybe it'll take some more deep shots to try and extend this defense and force them to play the deep ball a little bit and give them some more room to run inside. All right. I'm going to go back here to uh, our request. I think we've got like up to 16 questions and I'm going to try not to be too repetitive here and try to avoid some topics we've already touched on. All right. This is from Thor's hammer, Thomas on uh, Thor's hammer shot on Thomas. Uh, his real name's Thomas, I guess on Twitter. Um, he says, I saw Wesley and Chase on the field together a few times. How long before they take over as starters? Um, I think the question is, how long before Corey Flag costs you a game or, 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 you know, really one of those guys where it becomes abundantly clear their speed is what's costing Miami a game. You, if you look at the schedule, it's not going to be this game. I think um, they wouldn't they wouldn't do that in this game. It's too important. Um, they're not going to throw freshmen in there, uh, right away. Um, but I would say probably North Carolina or uh, the game right after that. I, I don't have the schedule in front of me right now. I, I got it on a sheet somewhere around here, but maybe the sixth game of the season, you know, I'll say I've, this, I'll say this. I think if they rotate Wesley Besant into a game or Chase Smith or whoever, um, and they start making plays. I think that snap count goes up significantly until they feel they can't keep them on the field or they're now being taken advantage of. If the kids are making plays out there, I think they'll run with them. I'm trying to find the schedule. I just don't have it in front of me. I got so much crap everywhere, Carlos. But but anyway, fifth or sixth game of the season, I could see that happening. There's no doubt that that's the push. Like, Gaddis today – I mean, not Gaddis, uh, Kevin Steele today, I asked him about the linebackers, and the, that was one of the first things out of his mouth was – you know, look at how much these guys are playing. Like the, we're we're pushing them towards it. So they're 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 not even like obviously that's a conversation they're even having in the linebacker room. I'm sure the the other guys know it. Like, hey, when these dudes are ready, they're the better players. And so at some point here, it'll it'll happen. All right, this is from Marcus Williams, Money Kane. Through two games, what is the biggest positive surprise, and what is the greatest area of concern? I'll let you go first. Um. I think Restrepo being as dependable as he's been and being such a playmaker on the offensive side of the ball for TVD, I think, is 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 the most pleasant surprise. You you thought they'd rely more on Will Mallory and Elijah Arroyo, maybe somebody get somebody going on the outside, but they've really depended on 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 Restrepo 
we talked about that being a possibility um, coming heading into camp that he was the most consistent throughout the spring and the fall. And he's proven it on the field. He's taken it on the field because sometimes you hear about guys having great camps, DJ Ivy, and they just really don't translate <laughs> um, <laughs> to the field as they should have. So you're seeing that. I think the most, I wouldn't say concerning thing for me. I think the thing for me that is, has been a little bit disappointing. It's, I don't know if disappointing is a little uh, the right word, but I don't think the defensive line has lived up to the hype coming into the season. Mm-hmm. They've been good. They haven't been bad, but they haven't been as dominant as, as we expected them to be. Well, I, I would say I'll start with the concern and end on a positive note. Oh, the corners? I, I, I would say the corners, yeah, because we just heard that they were the most improved, right? And, and we thought between that and the pressure that uh, the defense would be a lot more dominant in that front, and that hasn't been the case. Uh, they haven't really taken that step forward. Um, and, and, I, and I would say – the most pleasant surprise has been Henry Parrish because you think about where this running back group was before the season, before all these injuries happened, before Trevante Citizen and, and Don Chaney Jr. went down. And you're like, man, there's no way. Like, how, how are they going to split the carries? Not only have those two guys been out, but then Jalen Knighton gets hurt in camp. And it's basically him and Thad Franklin. And Miami's won two games with those guys. So not that I didn't believe in Henry Parrish because I knew obviously they wouldn't have brought him in if they didn't they weren't going to play him and, and didn't think he could help. But he's been better than I thought he would be. And I think yeah, that's yeah. a surprise. Going back to the spring where I said I thought he could end up being the starter in the fall, some, someone <laughs> scoffed at me and said, I don't think he has the body type to be a starter. Well, Manny, here yeah. we are. If I had here a horn, are. I'd toot it a second time. By the way, I'm going to toot my horn the third time. I also said that AM, uh, I mean, Appalachian State would be lucky to score 17 points. They should be happy if they get to 17. I was right. They were very happy when they got to 17 points. <laughs> All right. This is from Adam Folds, AFolds81 on Twitter. Um, what do you guys think Miami has to do to get out of College Station with a win? I would say, um, I would say win the turnover battle, like not turn it over more than twice. And have success running the football. Those two things happen. I think they're good enough to beat them. I think coming into this game, there's two things that that I, I really want to see Miami do. Number one is weather the storm, because these guys are going to come out on fire. A and M's going to come out excited, hyped up. They want to make up for the previous week. They're going to have 110,000 fans in a night game. They're going to be pissed off and ready to go. So if they weather those early storms of emotion and they're able to settle down and then start playing, I think they'll be successful. The other thing you want to see is you want to give AM, uh, for lack of a better term, PTSD. You want to make them relive App State in their mind after the way you're playing, as the way you're dominating the ball and running it down their throat and making them play physical again and having them to defend a lot of the same things they had to defend against App State that they didn't do a good job at and not average 3.8 yards a carry, maybe Buster for five or six and get that defense on its heels. If you can do that, if you can start getting A&M on its heels, take an early lead, maybe at halftime, then you've got them thinking again, like, oh, shit, is this going to happen all over again? Are we going to lose at home again? Right. Fair fair enough. Uh, good take. Um, this is from Tyler Overly, uh, Toverly on Twitter. Uh, will Gaddis open up the playbook, and will we see Jacoby George get some burn? I think He's going to open the playbook. I don't know about Jacoby George. Yeah, I don't think Jacoby George is going to play much in this game. Um, I would be surprised. That would be a surprise for sure if he did. Um, will he open up the playbook? I don't think it's going to be that different. Now, we may see a few gadget plays here and there to throw them off. 
Um, things that cer- certainly stuff with the tight ends, maybe that we didn't see. Maybe that's why Elijah Royal's been so quiet early on this year, um, because they're sort of saving his package and the H back role, which I think he has uh, so a lot of good plays back there. Um, I-, I would say I don't think it's going to be drastic. Like I don't think TVD is going to come out and throw for three hundred fifty yards in this game, um, and all of a sudden some some star receiver that's been hiding on the bench comes out and, and plays. I-, I think this is going to be exactly the same that we've seen the first two games with a few more wrinkles and the tight ends being more involved in the passing game. And I think that's what I mean by opening the playbook. It's not that he's going to, it doesn't necessarily mean he's going to throw out a bunch of new plays. What I think he's going to do is show concepts within the same framework that he hasn't shown yet. So different route concept they haven't shown yet, different uh, actions off of their run game they haven't shown yet to try and confuse the defense. They'll also do some stuff where they'll pull different guys where they normally, let's say, pull a guard in the H-back then they'll pull a guard and attack or the two guards or the, the fullback and the guard and they'll switch up the looks. So if AM's done their film study and they're prepped for a certain run play based on the set, the down and distance and how normally their tendencies are and they switch that up on them. Now you're confusing the defense and they're running to the wrong gaps and looking for the wrong keys. So I think that's what you're going to see a lot. All right. Um, this is a good question. Uh, the receivers are. Question mark, question mark, question mark. This is from David underscore Engelson on Twitter. The receivers are okay. That's what I'm going to say. I think they're okay. <laughs> they're not great. They're not bad. I think they're okay. And I think, I think having, like we talked about coming into the season and we saw that Michael Redding was getting more run in the fall camp. Michael Redding could be a, a steadying force. Give them a possession receiver on the outside that could be dependable and give them somebody outside of Xavier Restrepo to go to to be able to come up with a catch. If you've got that going, then maybe Keyshawn Smith can play a little freer and focus on getting vertical and getting down the field and making plays. Um, and we'll see what happens with the rest of the guys. At some point, it's nice to see Brashard Smith getting involved, and I think they'll do more of that. You know, Hopefully, Jacoby George gets his stuff straight, and they can get him on the field, and Romello keeps progressing. I think the kid's got a lot of talent, and uh, at some point, he's, he's going to have a big game. Um, I would say this. The receivers are doing the bare minimum. They're catching the ball. <laughs> That's what they're doing right now. Um, they're doing they're they're doing what is expected of them, which is catch the ball. They're not doing what is unexpected of them, which is taking over the game and showing us and proving us all wrong. They're not doing that yet. Um, will that happen going forward? We'll see. Um, I do think somebody has to emerge, or Miami will not win the division this year. They need one go-to deep threat, whether it's against Clemson, North Carolina. Somebody's got to come out and make those plays because eventually teams are going to figure out ways to stop this running game. And you're, you're just not going to be able to beat everybody off play action. You're going to need a, a stud to, to go up there and, and take over. Yeah, there's going to be a point where they're going to load the box, they're going to blitz you, and they're going to make you either going to play one-on-one on the outside and dare you to beat them. And somebody's going to have to make a play. All right. After this past weekend, um, what is your updated prediction of the Miami Texas AM game? This is from Lionel Torres or Torres Lionel three on Twitter. Uh, I've never given a prediction on the game yet, so I don't know about updated, but um, you know, it's hard, man. Talking about PTSD as a Canes fan, it's hard. I've got PTSD. I, I've seen too many games like this where they roll in and they think they got a shot to win and they get stomped, but I think they have a really good shot at winning this game. I think, AM has deficiencies on that offensive side of the ball. Um, you know, their run blocking isn't great. They're, they're a good pass protecting team. So if they can get pressure um, on Haynes King or Max Johnson, whoever's back there, 
I think that'll turn the tide a little bit. And I think they could stop their running game. And and if he throws the ball up or grabs a couple times, Miami could be there in position to get a couple picks and swing the momentum with turnovers as long as they don't turn the ball over themselves. So I think the Canes are going to win. Let's say by three. By how much? 30? I'm not Kelvin. Three. <laughs> uh, my updated prediction for this game is Miami will win by a touchdown. 27-20. I would have picked Texas A&M to win this game had I not seen what happened last week with their quarterback situation and heard some of the things that I heard today in these interviews about young guys not playing in. There's not a lot of um, senior leadership on this team. And not that you need that to win, certainly. Um, I've seen young teams win before, but there's something wrong there. And I think part of it is maybe they're not playing the right quarterback and the players know it. That's part of it. And I think here's the byproduct of NIO. Here's the byproduct of recruiting guys with money and, and enticing them for things other than playing for a purpose. And, and when you don't have a strong cultural foundation, you don't recruit guys that you think match your team's culture, when you're just basically going out there and getting hired assassins and mercenaries and paying dudes to come here to play, that's when you start to have culture issues. And also, when you have guys that are probably getting paid more, that are incoming freshmen, than the guys that have been on the roster before and busted their ass for three years, that creates a little friction in the locker room. So if you don't have the right guy at the helm, and if you don't have the right culture in that locker room, teams can fracture, and that might be a little bit of what's happening with the AM. This question is from Sam Knowlton on Twitter, same spelling. Uh, besides the obvious cash infusion, what culture shifts have you noticed in this program after nine months? We kind of touched on this earlier when we were breaking down the team. Um, I would say one other uh, culture shift is there's enthusiasm with the recruits. Like, I think recruits don't look at Miami anymore the way that they did um, under Manny Diaz. And I do think that, you know, in terms of the high school players, like, they're still waiting to see how the season goes before they fully buy in. But I do think, at the very least, there's not sort of a snickering, right? Like, there's no more like, oh, that's Miami, whatever, bro. You know, like, I've seen this my whole life. They haven't won. I do think that right now the kids look at the way the team is playing. Um, and this game is going to impact that a lot. Um, the big picture and the big opinion. But I think if Miami wins this game, they're probably going to win 10 games this year, at least, and probably end up locking up a solid recruiting class in the sense of top 10, top seven, top eight, somewhere in there. Um, yeah, and absolutely. that's, that's going to be pivotal, pivotal to this whole thing of them, of them getting to where they want to go in Mario. Absolutely. All right, uh, this is from David Sims. Uh, he liked our episode where we walked through our opponents this year. As a follow-up, aside from AP uh, AP State, App State beating A&M, what's the biggest surprise you've seen from Miami's 2022 opponents through the first two weeks of the season? Duke. Duke I was going to say the same thing. Yeah, Duke being 2-0 and and doing it against uh, two decent teams. Yeah, I mean, look, Temple and, and Northwestern, I mean, they're not, um, you know, superpowers, but they're but – they're, Power five teams and Duke. And they would have beaten Duke last year. Yeah. You know, sometimes fresh blood, right? Mike Elko is a good defensive coordinator, um, but sometimes fresh blood at the top really does. And look, that's no knock on David Cutcliffe. He pulled off some miracles at Duke, winning the division and getting into bowl games and all that kind of stuff. But every coach seems to have a course, right? Like there's only so much time where that message continues to resonate. Duke yeah, you got a shelf life. They were dead in the water the last couple of years. And, and uh, he's really... 
uh, rough things up. And I would say Florida State, you know, obviously I, I didn't think they'd be 2-0 at this point. Uh, I thought they would have lost uh, to LSU. And look, they barely won, but they, they've looked better to me than I thought they would look on the defensive end, especially after yeah. using Jermaine Johnson and some of those guys. Absolutely. I think their defense is a lot better than people gave them credit for. They can run the ball really well. Jordan Travis is playing well, and I think he's he's the most dangerous player left on the Miami schedule to me because of his elusiveness. And that's not only is his elusiveness, but also one of Miami's weaknesses is being able to run down athletic quarterbacks. That was David P. Sims on Twitter with that question. This is from Rick Smith or Kane Stealth. Feels like a new energy around the YouTube slash insider report card or report crowd, reporter crowd. What new rules has Mario implemented to get all these independent mercenaries in line? Or is it or is this just a new coach grace period? How hard is it for you to maintain the appearance of neutral? Are a are you a UM fan? Wow. Um, look, I get asked this question all the time about my fandom, um, and I've been a reporter um, much longer in my life than I was a teenager growing up in this city, you know, rooting for the hometown teams to win. Um, I'm 44 now. I've been a reporter since I was 17. And so I've lived on the other side of this for a long time. Obviously, I, I'd like to see the Miami teams win and have success because it's good for me. But I adopted this mentality a while ago from from being around Dan Levitard and, you know, some of the other journalists that I worked with at the Miami Herald. You root for the good story. You root for for, for what's going to help you in this business. And so many people are struggling right now as journalists. I think the um, the amount of people covering the team has inundated um, what people actually want to watch, what they want to see. I think it's just sort of. There's just too much out there, too many opinions, and I don't think people know, okay, who are the people really covering the team versus who isn't? So all of that, I think, hurts um, people like me who get paid for a living to do this. But um, in the long run, you know, I I just want to see Miami do well. Uh, I've said for a long time Mario Cristobal was the right coach for this job. I said this years ago. I said this before Mark Richt quit. Um, And I'm rooting for him to succeed because I know that'll be good for the city of Miami and it'll be good for my business. Yeah, um, as you can see, I'm very impartial. Like I don't, I'm very like non, nondescript with my hurricane fandom. Um, yeah, like I'm, I'm just a Homer fan. Although I sound semi reasonable uh, on the podcast and and when we do these YouTube videos, as you can tell, there's I have reasonable eyes. I look like a reasonable human being. But as as the week goes on, by the time I hit Friday, it's like Doctor Jekyll and Mister Hyde. Mm-hmm. I'm already starting to get amped up Friday. By the time I wake up Saturday morning. I am a completely different person and you do not want to be around me when the game is on. Like I'm just hyper focused on the game. All right. This is from David Hernandez, D Hernan underscore. Do you feel more confident in the O-line's ability to run block or the defensive line play heading into the game? If I had to choose one unit that I think would play better out of the two, I think it's probably going to be the defensive line. But I think the offensive line has an opportunity to to dominate A&M. If they they come in there with with a sound game plan and, and ready to go, I'm gonna say offensive line because I feel like that's what's gonna dictate this game. Miami's defensive line obviously is just as important. You got to win up front, but I think ultimately it's gonna come down to what you said, Carlos, which is one on one coverage um, for the cornerbacks. And if they are getting toasted all night long and Miami's running the ball, um, I would take the offense that throws the ball to score a lot more points than the team that runs the ball. And so I think uh, in this case, Miami needs to 
own time of possession the way Appalachian State did. And if they're not running the ball successfully in this game and, and sort of keeping AM's offense off the field and, and the defense getting off quickly, throwing them off their game, then I think Texas AM probably is winning this game by more than a touchdown. And that's why I think the D-line is important. I think if they could shut down the run game and force Haynes King to be a passer and try and lead them to victory, I think the Hurricanes win the game pretty easily. But I think you may see Max Johnson get some run before it's all said and done. This is from Miami underscore Matt. Uh, now that Texas A&M lost, how important is this game for recruiting? Love the pod. Keep up the good work. Thanks, Matt. Um, how important is it for recruiting? I wrote this. Somebody asked me this question in the ACC mailbag that I did for The Athletic. Um, I would say it's important, but it's not five-star important. I think where Miami finishes in the ACC is more important than beating Texas A&M head-to-head. I would call this a four-star game. It's, it's important in, in the sense that they need to be able to go out there, and even if they don't win the game, it needs to be a game that was a, a, a dogfight, where they're down there, they're in it at the end, and if they lose, they lose down the stretch on a last-second play or something like that, you know, a last-second field goal. It can't be a situation where you are continuing this trend that they had in the past, especially last year and the last two or three years, where you go in and play Alabama, an SEC team, and get your ass kicked, or you play Clemson and just get totally destroyed and are never in the game. You play Wisconsin, and Wisconsin totally physically outplays you and dominates you. So you need to be able to go in there and show that you can compete with these other conferences, even though A&M may not be the upper echelon anymore uh, in somebody's in some, a lot of people's eyes of the SEC. They still are a good SEC football team, better than a lot of the ACC football teams, uh, and you need to go in there in that home on their home field and get a win. If you could do that, then it raises your profile as a team, I think, in recruit size. Maybe not to the level of beating a Clemson on the road or beating Alabama, obviously, but it definitely raises your profile. All right. We, we, we're kind of running the course here, and I, and I love the fact that we got so many questions, but we're, we are uh, up against the clock here a little bit. So I'm going to try to speed through these a little more. This is from our buddy, Rarely Do I Tweet. Uh, that would be uh, TT Company Makati. Any whispers on Avante and thoughts on spectators spouting who took snaps away from him and making assumptions, even though they don't view practices or speak with coaches? Um, the whispers on Avante, um, I would say this. I think too many people, the Instagram stuff, right? Like watching a player's Instagram, this means this and that. Sometimes people get pissed. They're allowed to get angry. It's just there's there's social media now. So when you when you show that level of immaturity and, and, you, and your coach notices and he has to come and talk to you, that wouldn't have, nobody would have known about this otherwise, right? That there was any sort of issue. Um, but it happens more often than not, right? Carlos, am I wrong? You're, you were the real athlete. You're the one who played on your high school football team. How often do players come in complaining about playing time? Oh, all the time. I mean, just, just because I play high school football doesn't make me an expert on the, on the subject, but whatever. Uh, <laughs> but yeah, I, I think it's, it's also, you're dealing with kids, man. We got to forget, we kind of forget that these aren't professional athletes and professional athletes can be very immature. Mm -hmm. This is, you know, a 19, 20 year old kid. Um, not happy. Been, he's been used to being the, the man his whole life. Highly recruited out of high school. Was expected to come in here and start and be, be you know, one of the frontline players from Manny Diaz and Ephraim Banda. And it hasn't worked out the way you hope and you get frustrated. I was in that position as a player myself where you get pissed off and frustrated and it feels like everybody's against you because you can't make it up the depth chart and you're, you're just waiting for your opportunity, hoping and waiting. And, and some guys react differently than others. Some people are able to, to overcome it, use that as fuel to push them. Other guys just you know, sort of get in a hole and, and, and continue getting angrier and angrier until it, it, it explodes. And it's, 
it's obvious to people. I, I don't follow any of the players on, on social media just because I don't want to see stuff like that uh, because I don't want to be you – know, it just makes me uncomfortable following kids to begin with. But also it's like I'm not going to read into all the tweets and all their, their posts and stuff like that. Let the coaches handle that stuff. They'll, they're, they're the ones that know better than we do. This is from Zofessional or Junior on Twitter. Hey, Manny and Carlos wanted to know, uh, will the players and the team have the same energy fire I saw on the field from the players from App State? Mario can try and take them to that mentality, but who will actually be that true dog on Saturday night? Thanks, fellas. Again, I, I think all of that confidence, that inner confidence is built at the high school level. So I always look to the guys who actually won and dominated at the high school level, the five stars, the the four stars who won state championships. Those are the guys when they're put in the arena like this, they rise to the occasion. And then you also have guys who pissed on their leg, right? I mean, <laughs> it's scary playing in front of a hundred thousand people. That like it's very tough to simulate that in any way, shape, or form in life. You know, you walk out and all of a sudden, you know, I, I had that one experience covering the Marlins playoffs back in in uh in 2003, Pudge Rodriguez, that big collision at the plate with JT Snow. I ran onto the field right after that. And to have that stadium at the top of their lungs, 80,000 people screaming, um, it was something to today that I can sit here and tell you, There's I've never experienced anything like that. It's it's unbelievable. Um, yeah. And, and to imagine having to go remember what to do while that's happening, right? Like I, I ran out there, I had to interview um, – Pudge, I put my my microphone right up to his face, the whole, you know, the whole thing. But it's one of those things where it's like you just rely. OK, what do I have to do again? But it, it can really frazzle your brain. I think if I were to tell you guys that would do it, I think it'll be James Williams. I think it'll be Leonard Taylor. I think it'll be guys that have Cam Kitchens. In. Yeah, Cam Kitchens. Uh, it'll be Tyler Van Dyke, who's played in, in a rough environment already a few times. Um, and I think it's also guys that that have played with a chip on their shoulder their whole life. Like Xavier Restrepo. Right. Those are the guys that'll do it. Remember, Xavier had the touchdown against Alabama last year, so he'll he'll bring it. Um yep. this is from Redheaded Girl Dad to a believer. Am I wrong or does Dar- Garcia look better than TVD? Uh well, first of you're judging it based on him getting garbage time against Bethune Cookman and a few throws against Southern Miss. I mean, come on, man. It's 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 they have the coaches have seen enough of these two guys from the spring to now to determine whether Jake Garcia should start over TVD. And if believe me, if Mario Cristobal thought Jake Garcia was better than TVD, he wouldn't give a shit with all what all the hype is. Jake Garcia would be starting. And if it comes to an opportunity where he feels that TVD is struggling and he thinks Garcia is the best shot for them to win, then he'll make a move. But right now, I think you know we're coming off TVD struggling a little bit. And starting to get uh, some people are getting off the hype train. Let's not forget this guy's a hell of a ball player. He's got a lot of tools, a lot of tools that maybe Jake Garcia doesn't have, and Garcia has some tools that TVD doesn't have. But I think you'll you'll be happy with TVD's performance at the end of the season as a whole. And I think he's gonna he's got an opportunity this game to really prove whether or not he's worth the hype, and whether or not he is going to be a, a, a you know two first, second, or third round draft pick, and potentially a starter in the in the NFL. This is a, one of those games that determines whether he can really play under the lights and in that crowd and in that environment like you were talking about and be a big-time player. Because as they said in the past, big-time players make big-time plays in big-time games. All right, Mr. Cliche. Um, I, I will say the lights are on bright this week for TVD. Um, there were three NFL teams at the last game, at the Miami game, uh, a couple hanging out, the two two Patriots reps sitting there talking with Alonzo Highsmith, who, of course, has plenty of connections to the NFL 
Look, I know the Patriots drafted Mac Jones, but we saw how he played on Sunday. Wasn't that great? Um, I think people are doing their homework on TVD. I think, you know, the Rams were there. Um, there was one other team that I had uh, listed here. Um, Taylor Morton from the Los Angeles Rams, Tyler Walker from the Jacksonville Jaguars, and then Matt Groh and Elliot Wolf from the Patriots. Those were the... And I wouldn't be surprised if the hometown Dolphins didn't have somebody sitting in the press box or somewhere in one of the offices looking down. Because let me tell you, Tua Believer, the last guy that just sent the last tweet, my yeah. man. Uh, <laughs> yeah, he didn't look well, great. Be some, well, you might have to change that Twitter handle if the Dolphins end up drafting TVD and he starts. <laughs> All right, two, last two. BP9121, Brent Peterson on Twitter. Will we see more Knighton against Texas A&M? Will we see Zion start and play the whole game? Looks like they lined up at right tackle. Looks like he lined up at right tackle to the last game. I don't know. That's a great question. I, I don't think Knighton starts. I think you keep rolling with Henry Parrish. He played in the SEC. He'll be ready for that environment. Um, I, I think Zion is is questionable. I I don't I don't know that you mess with the chemistry this week. I think they've played well enough to continue to to keep their spots and you can bring Zion in if somebody struggles and then you make an adjustment. I, I think uh I think Zion starts at left tackle. I think you'll see more snaps for Jalen Knighton, more situational snaps, not necessarily, you know, twenty or thirty snaps, maybe twelve to fifteen situationally to get him the ball in space. But I think you go with your best players. And I think they feel like Zion Nelson is their best left tackle. They needed to work him in last week, get him ready to go. And I think your best five has both John Campbell and Zion Nelson out there, but I think the Zion's a left tackle and Campbell's a right, the right tackle, and you've got DJ Scape at guard as, as their best five, along with Jalen Rivers and Ja'Kai Clark. All right, this final question is from Sean Mind the Meter Von Forsch, or Von Forsch for short, on Twitter. Do you think we will see a quarterback change at Texas A&M? How will Gaddis get the tight ends more involved, hoping Mario has a team ready for an Aggie squad who will be looking to have a bounce-back game? All right. We've covered all of this in some way, shape, or form. Do I think Texas A&M will start a different quarterback? No. I think they're going to start the same guy this week. Um, could they make a change in game? Absolutely. And then how will Goddess get the tight ends more involved? We kind of touched on it. I think you saw App State have some success lining their tight end up as an H-back in the backfield, letting him run in motion. I think that's how you're going to see the tight ends involved. And every now and then they'll take a shot down the middle of the field. I agree. And here's a little stat that I was looking for. When you caught me up in the air, I was kind of like, give it to us, baby. All give right. Henry, Henry Paris, A&M played Old Miss last year. Henry Paris had nine carries for 58 yards against Texas A&M last year. There you go. You That's 6.4 yards per carry. Carlos, appreciate it. Another good show here on the Wide Right Podcast. Make sure you tune in. We may be able to get Sam Kahn, our Texas uh, expert from The Athletic, back on this week to talk a little bit. Kahn! Um, but right Sorry, now, that was, you, you that was a Star Trek Carlos. reference. <laughs> that was a Star Trek reference. Only like 10 people got that. Yes, I got it. I got it. Carlos, thanks for coming on. Make sure you check him out at the Miami MIA All Day podcast. You know, I know I killed you. It's MIA All Day pod. MIA All Day pod. There you go. I got Thank it right you. two times in a row. I just I saw the Miami hat and I said Miami. Yeah, I'm, I'm, I'm throwing you off. It's the cigar smoke is creeping its way through the internet and the Wi Fi and hitting you in the face. All right, brother. Good good show. Talk to you soon. All right, man.